this morning. We are back in James. It's our next to last message in the book of James. Next week we will uh, finish it out uh, with the last section. Uh, James has been uh, in your face. I was uh, with a couple of you last night and we were talking uh, about this book and one of you said, I just love how direct he is because I think that's what I'm like. And, um, and I said, well, uh, I wonder if you have many friends. Um, no, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Uh, but I have enjoyed, I have enjoy, so enjoyed uh, James just cutting through, cutting through it and just, just imperative after imperative after imperative uh, to really give us handles on what, what is the practical nature uh, of the Christian life. So let's pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, my preparation won't do any good here. Uh, Lord, even um, uh, being here to listen won't do any good. Uh, Lord, what we need is your spirit. Uh, we need your spirit to change us, Lord. We can't change our own desires. Uh, we need to be convinced of uh, our inability uh, to meet our own needs. And Lord, see you as the great need meter. And so, Lord, I pray uh, you would convince us of that through your word here this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? Anyone? I've got Fran and I. A couple more. Uh, you took your psychology 101 class, perhaps. Um, this happened, this experiment happened about 50 years ago, 1972. It happened uh, in, at the University of Stanford, uh, and it was done by a psychologist. His name was uh, Walter Michel. And in his experiment, uh, he would take a child and put a child into a, a room uh, that was empty, had no distractions whatsoever, and offered them one marshmallow, just one, and told the child, if you can wait here for 15 minutes without giving into the temptation of eating the marshmallow, uh, you will be rewarded with a second marshmallow. And what he did was that he had a video camera and he would, uh, he had video, and he would observe the children and what he found is that they would cover their eyes from the marshmallow they would talk to themselves, they would sing, they invented games with their hands and their feet, and uh, they even tried to fall asleep during these 15 minutes to, to, to distract themselves from wanting the marshmallows. It's really quite comical. And then he started doing these follow-up studies, the researchers did, and here's what they found. They found that the children who were able to wait for the second marshmallow, that they tended to have better life outcomes. They had higher SAT scores. They had more educational attainment. They even had healthier scores on the body mass index. So really what this study was getting after was delayed gratification, which in some ways is like the Christian virtue of patience. Patience is a passive virtue in many ways because it's the choice to do nothing. But patience is really hard to cultivate, isn't it? I mean, our world moves at lightning speed. Patience isn't high on the list of desirable virtues because patience looks like a, la a lack of passion, a, a lack of desire. If you really look at the people who grab headlines in our world, they're all impatient because they're getting things done. You watch movies and they exalt other virtues like courage and compassion, but if you find a movie that exalts patience, but you'll find quite the snoozer. 
But patience is essential to the good life. We all know it. You need it to deal with people. You need it to do meaningful work. And most importantly, you need it when life is really, really hard. And that's what James brings up in our text today. He speaks on the need for patience when life gets tough. So let's read our text together. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of the Lord. Today I've got three points, no surprise. The first one is the need for patience. The second is the obstacle to patience. And the last is the source of patience. So the need, the obstacle, and the source. Let's start with the need. Remember uh, what came immediately uh, before our text, what Wayne preached on yesterday or last Sunday from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. That passage is a, is a warning to rich folks in the church who are taking advantage of the poor folks in the church and now James is going to address the poor people in the church. He has a word for them, and his word is patience. You see it four times in four verses. And you might expect James to call them towards resistance, right? Rather than patience. I mean, resistance comes more naturally in the midst of suffering. But there's no need for that kind of response according to verses 7, 8, and then 9 because help is on the way. The help is the coming Lord. There's no need for them to resist, no need for them to take vengeance into their own hands because God is going to avenge for them. So we aren't to attack the world when we suffer. James also tells us we're not to compromise towards the world when we suffer either. See, it's easy to let your guards down when times are hard. We're tempted to lose heart, and that's why James commands the church in verse 8 to, you see it? In verse 8, he says, establish your hearts. And that word for establish, we see it in another place in the New Testament. We see it in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It's said about Jesus. It says that he established, or he fixed, or he set his face towards Jerusalem. It's a turning point in the book of Luke because now everything is fixed towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be arrested, where he's going to be tried, where he's going to be convicted, and where he's going to be crucified. Jesus was determined for that direction. He's dead set. He's got this steely resolution about it. And so when James says, establish your hearts, he's saying to endure, to be persistent, patiently persistent in the midst of your suffering. But what does this patient persistence look like? Well, in our text, he gives us three examples. Did you catch them? 
The first one is in verse 7, the farmer. The second one is the prophets in verse 10. And the third one is Job in verse 11. See, the farmer, I mean, think about it. Think about what a farmer does. Most of us didn't grow up in agricultural context, but some of us did. But in the course of the process of farming and harvesting across, think about what the farmer has to do. The farmer has to prepare the field. A farmer's got to sow the seed. And the farmer has to harvest the crop. But in order for the farmer to harvest the crop, there's one thing the farmer can't do. The only way he's going to get his desired outcome of the harvest is to rely on the part that he can do, and that's for the rain to come. And that's what James brings up here in verse 7. The same is true for us. We've got to wait just like the farmer. But when you're hurting, you want the pain to stop. But often what you've got to do in the midst of your pain is you've got to wait. You think in the midst of your pain that those who are hurting you when they apologize, you think that's going to help. You think that hope is so painful that you're going to just throw in the towel on your faith, deconstruction anyone. But you've got to wait. You've got to submit to the process. I mean, think about it. The, the farmer to fight against waiting for the rain is totally futile. The farmer can rant and rave and check the weather forecast, but that's not going to speed things up one lick. So learning to wait well is part of what it means to be a successful farmer. Part of waiting for God in the midst of our suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. That's the farmer. And then verse 10, he tells us about the prophets. The prophets are examples of those in the Old Testament who were patient amidst their suffering. I mean, all these prophets in the Old Testament, none of them were megachurch pastors. <laughs> none of them had these big, fruitful ministries whatsoever. But they were faithful. And their ministries were marked by hardship. I mean, just let me just list a few for you. Think about Jeremiah. Some of this was new to me. It's been a long time since I spent much time in the prophets. But here's what I dug up. You have Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was hunted down by men in his hometown because they wanted him to stop preaching. Suffering. Ezekiel. Ezekiel loses his beloved wife, but God calls him to preach the morning and evening of her death. Suffering. Daniel. Daniel lived his whole life in exile, and that's where he served in his career, not in the midst of Jerusalem during the high times of David's reign, but in exile, suffering for Daniel. And you've got Isaiah. Isaiah has promised at the outset of his ministry, chapter 6, that he's going to preach and no one's going to listen to him. In fact, at the end of Isaiah's life, he dies a martyr. He's sawed in two. You've got Hosea. Hosea's marriage was in itself the Lord's message to and through him, and that marriage was one that was broken down by his wife's unfaithfulness. So these prophets, these prophets are examples of these steely-hearted men who waited for God to use their message and who didn't respond with revenge to the injustice that they suffered because they knew God would do that himself. And that's why James calls us to emulate their patience. And that last one, you've got it with Job. James mentions Job there in verse 11. In case you forgot, Job is the man in the Old Testament who he lost all his wealth. He lost all his children. He 
got these oozing blisters. His wife vilifies him for all that's gone wrong, and all this was a test of faith. And Job was human, so his response was far from perfect. If you read Job, what you'll find is that he laments the day of his birth. He insists upon his innocence. He disputes with his friends. He complains that he deserves none of his woes. And eventually, he demands that God explain his suffering. But Job did persevere. Job never cursed God. And at the end of his book, Job learns a valuable lesson, a lesson that God is both sovereign and good. And Job's example is important for us because we see that our present suffering is not the end of the story. We've got to be patient too to see how God will transform our situation for our good. All these examples, the farmer, the prophets, the, and then, then Job, all this is all well and good, but it sounds nearly impossible, doesn't it? I mean, to be patient in the midst of intense suffering like Job and the prophets, to be faithful to our part like the farmer, but ultimately have no control of the outcome, it requires a patience that we're not so sure that we can muster up. And it's because this kind of patience is not native to our kind. What's native to our kind is what James mentions here in verse 9 and verse 12. In verse 9, he says what's native to us is grumbling against one another. What's native to our kind in verse 12 is making vows. Let's look at verse 9, this grumbling. And the word for grumbling isn't always a bad thing in the Scriptures. We find it used in other places. We see it used of Jesus in Mark 7, verse 34. Jesus comes upon a deaf man, and it says he grumbles. Now, when he grumbles, he's not mad at the deaf man. He's groaning. He's sighing. He hates that the condition for which this deaf man is in. Use again in Romans 8.23 to talk about our longing for redemption. So it's okay. It's really this grumbling. It's just a recognition of that there's something fallen in the world. So what makes this grumbling unacceptable according to James? Isn't the grumbling itself. It's the fact that the grumbling is, you see it? It's against one another. See, James's readers, the one that he's addressing in these verses, are under the pressure of poverty. They're likely under persecution, so they should grumble to the Lord. If they grumble to the Lord, that's an expression of faith. But that's not the kind of grumbling that they're engaging in. Instead, they're turning their frustrations on one another. Reminds me of every time we had a baby at our house. We were tired. We turned on one another. See, as the temperature of life, as it's turned up, we turn on those closest to us, don't we? In fact, the closer you are to someone, the more likely you are to grumble against them. I mean, we, we develop this strong sense of annoyance with, with what are usually the unintentional faults of others. I mean, think about it. Think about the people who, who, are, who are James is addressing here. He's addressing the poor folks in his audience, and these people are grumbling against one another when who they shouldn't be grumbling against are non-Christians who are persecuting them. Who they should be grumbling against are the rich folks. But instead, they're biting at one another instead. So it not only hurts the community, but it's totally unproductive. I think this is a key insight for all of us. It begs the question, who bears the brunt of our complaint? When life is hard, who bears the brunt of our complaint? Is it God? 
It should be. I mean, he can handle it. I mean, when the pressures of life get turned up, it's a call to prayer. It's a call to, yeah, sure, you can ask God for relief. You can ask God to bring those who have hurt you to repentance. But we also have to let our pain be known to him. And if you don't, what you're going to do is you're going to grumble to those closest to you and you're going to hurt them. It's going to leave your family and your friends. It's going to leave them in ruins. So what's going to tame our grumbling tongues? You see it in verse 9. Same thing that's going to cure those who had inflicted pain on the poor in the church. It's the coming of the Lord. Now, the return of the Lord is brought into this discussion because it calls for those who have been hurt and are grumbling against one another to their fellow, to their fellow believers to examine their own behavior. The judgment of God and Christ's second coming comforts us because it takes the pressure off of us for exacting revenge on those who have hurt us, but it also prompts us to do some self-assessment. Not because we risk experiencing God's wrath, but because we risk not enjoying communion with him. So we grumble against one another. That's what comes native to us. The other thing is in verse 12, it's the making of oaths. James mentions this second unhelpful response and this making of oaths and made me think about Peter. I mean, Peter makes two vows, doesn't he? Towards the end of Jesus' earthly life. The first is when Jesus predicts that he's going to deny him three times before the sun rises the next day. Why did Peter make that vow? It's because he didn't have any patience. <laughs> I mean, when Jesus said, hey, Peter, uh, you're going to deny me three times by the time that rooster crows tomorrow. He responds instantly with, no, I'm not. When he should have said, wow, this is Jesus. Jesus clearly knows a lot about the world and about me. I should ask him some questions. Jesus, what am I really like on the inside? Why do you think that about me? How could I go about being different? <laughs> But instead, he doesn't have the patience for that conversation. He just runs right into making this rash vow. But then Peter makes a vow just 24 hours later, doesn't he? He's in the courtyard right outside where Jesus is being tried. People recognize Peter as being one of Jesus' close associates. And they say, don't you know Jesus? He said, no. He says no three times. And at the last, he swears and he takes an oath. And this is all of it because his heart hasn't been established. He couldn't stand the thought of patiently enduring what might come his way if he told these people the truth that he did in fact know Jesus. So we all do this when we're under stress. When we mess up, we vow not to repeat our mistakes, don't we? When someone hurts us, we vow to be more cautious the next time. If you've been with us these last several weeks that we've been looking at James, it should be no surprise to you that the sins of the tongue, making vows, grumbling against one another, our brothers and sisters, that that's what James is going to call out. James is perceptive. He's keen on the human condition. He knows that we will take the immediate marshmallow rather than wait for the two. So where are we going to get the patience that he calls for? Where's the source going to come from? Well, remember what we said so many times, what God demands, God supplies. God demands patience, he's going to supply it. You see it in the second half of verse 11. Second half, verse 11 says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. You read through these verses, at least for me, when I read through these verses, that second half of verse 11 caught me off guard. I mean, in the midst of this text, it's just be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. Establish your heart, endure. Follow the example of the farmer, the prophets, Job. Don't grumble, don't make vows. But right there in the middle, right there it says God is compassionate and merciful. It's hard to believe. See, God knows the worst about us. He knows we're impatient. He knows we're flaky. Yet at the bottom of who he is, behind all that he's ever done, it lies his heart of love. It lies his compassion and his mercy and his love is so great that the greater misery you're in, the more his pity goes out for you. See, as you suffer and you need patience to endure, as you grumble and make oaths out of impatience, as he sees the ugliness in our lives, his affection is drawn to you. You might say, well, I can understand that if I've been sinned against and I'm suffering and I'm hurting. I can understand that God comes down to me in that moment, that he's compassionate, merciful to me there. That's easy for me to believe. But what's hard for me to believe is that Jesus is going to come to me in the midst of my rash oaths and my grumbling against one another. That's much harder to believe. And it's because our logic goes something like this. I'm culpable for my sin, whereas my suffering is simply what befalls me in the world ruined by the fall. I mean, we think, surely God's heart, it flows freely to me when I'm sinned against, much more freely than when I myself sin. But brother and sister, I'm here to ask the question, what if the intensity of God's love is aimed at us in our sin just as much, if not more, than as in our suffering? See, we tend to have a much greater difficulty believing verse 11, that God is merciful and compassionate to sinners. But brother and sister, that's the love that sent Jesus to the cross. That's the love that had Jesus absorbed the penalty for our sin. And the penalty for our sin, that's the worst suffering we could possibly experience. And we'll never experience it because Jesus did on our behalf. And brother and sister, this love is not tied to your loveliness, but quite the contrary, that this love comes to you as you're enveloped by your unloveliness. This kind of love, the love that flows from the cross, it gets underneath your impatience and it whispers to you, you can endure with patience. I died for you. I rose from the dead. I ascended to the Father. I'm coming again. I'm going to make all things right in you and things outside of you. So be patient. It's like my mentor, Dr. Wilson, often says, he says, trouble ain't always. Let me give one final word on patience and suffering. The most practical thing I've got right here at the end. When you're suffering, and you're suffering because of the sin of other people, you have two options, biblically. The first one is this. You can follow the example of Jesus. It's the example of Jesus, according to 1 Peter 2, 23, says that he was reviled and he did not revile in return. That he suffered and he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly.
So you, in many ways, can silently suffer. You can suffer in prayer and ask God to do something in your situation. Your second option is this. You can confront the person who sinned against you. Now, you should only do this when you've resolved in your heart that you're only going to speak out of benefit for that other person. That you're not going to speak in anger. That you're not just, just going to do it to get it off your chest and to make your life more pleasant. But both of these options require patience, don't they? You know, in the first one, you're waiting for God to do something. You're waiting for him to come again, like our text says. You're waiting for, the, for him to come and give them the justice that you so desperately need and that they deserve. Or you're waiting on him to come and change their hearts. But the second option, you're waiting for God to make you tender, to make you forgiving, and to use your confrontation to win your brother or sister over, not to nail them against the wall. So friends, this is really hard. I think we need to pray the prayer that we find at the end of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, many of us, many of us even uh, in our, some of us in our financial security and our professional and educational attainments, it has not shielded us from a broken world where we live with immense heartache. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, give us the patience we need. And Lord, I pray you would give us the wisdom to know which biblical route to take. Oh Lord, would you uh, comfort us in these minutes and make applications I could never make on my own. Pray these things in your name. Amen.